The Girl Who Trod on a Loaf, a novel by Catherine Davis. In the 34th year of my life, tragedy having turned my basic languor to indolence, my skepticism to sorrow, I came to be haunted by the ghost of a woman almost twice my age, Helly Tenbricks, composer and murderess, impenitent Helly. Within a week of her death, she'd managed to peck her way through the eggshell-thin wall that separated her world from mine. And how did she do this, you might ask? For the moment, let's just say that she planned my haunting as carefully as she'd planned each of her operas, with the same attention to detail, to elaboration of motif, with the same blurring of distinctions between the sublime and the vulgar, Darling, shy, helly, seraph and magpie, light of my life, an infernal engine of darkness. The truth is, I still miss her, even now, long after I have finally laid her ghost to rest. My guess is she was putting the finishing touches on her plan during the month before she died, after she'd at last admitted that she was too sick to take care of herself and had checked into the hospital. Dami la mano in pegno, I remember her saying. Her voice was practically inaudible, a whispered croak. Don't be fooled. There was nothing pathetic about her. Those are the words of the commendatore at the end of Don Giovanni, just before he drags the Don with him down to hell. Marco understands, don't you, Marco, she asked. And the man in question, a heavyset male nurse with the radiant eyes of an ingenue, answered, si, signorina. By then, he was the only member of the hospital staff Helly would tolerate, although I knew that even Marco was going to have a hard time getting her to swallow the medicine from its pleated paper cup or to let him take her blood pressure I could hear it rattling behind me, that wheeled apparatus which registered so matter-of-factly the faltering of a human heart. La mano, Francis, Helly repeated. While her voice seemed to be a little stronger, almost irritable, it continued to come from that place at the back of her throat where she used to claim the Danish language, her mother tongue, likewise came from. Her arm lifted stiffly, straight above the white thermal blanket, and it made me sad to see the blue plastic band strapped around her wrist instead of the usual bracelet of silver birds, linked beak to claw, their eyes made of emeralds. She said that when she was a girl in Jutland, her mother used to take her by the hand and lead her into the bog. Like this, she said, and through her glove of loose skin, I could feel a tremor in the bones as if she'd been hit at the root with a mallet. You had to be careful, she said. The light in the bog was weak. If you weren't careful, you'd blunder into a peat hag and drown. How could I know what she was up to? I thought she merely wanted to reassure herself that I was there to get me to warm her hand, which was like a lump of ice. By now, Marco no longer bothered to try to draw blood from her. The veins were too brittle, collapsing immediately. The blood wouldn't come out and instead made a dark pool under the skin. 
When you're as old as I am, Heli said, bodies production of everything, cells, marrow, hair, oil, slows down. So why should an, any old woman in her right mind give up even a single drop of blood? Close your eyes, Francis, she said. Can't you remember the tufts of cotton grass brushing against your legs? The cloud of midges buzzing around your face? But I was too dull and weary to be suspicious. It never occurred to me that what she really wanted was for me to provide the girl's hand with a layer of subcutaneous fat, with tin nails bit to the quick, with a feathering of dark hair just below the knuckles. Meanwhile, all I could hear was the sound of the water cooler as it choked up a bubble of air, cards being shuffled across the hall, the chiming of the intercom, an obscenity and a sigh. Of course she knew what she was doing, even toward the end when she claimed the disease had clouded her mind, she knew. She was preparing for me my legacy, to Francis Thorne, whose distrust of material wealth provides me with no alternative. I leave the conditional wealth of my final opera, regrettably unfinished at the time of my death, secure in the knowledge that she will complete it in a manner compatible with my intentions. Her lawyer explained that I'd find a package in Helly's trailer, the trailer itself and everything else in it, as well as her financial holdings and control of her musical estate. She'd left to two ten-year-olds, Flo and Ruby, my twin daughters. Her intentions, I thought. Good luck, Francie. In this way, I was forced to return to what the newspapers had called the scene of the crime, to that turquoise blue trailer mounted on Cinderbox, where Heli spent the last two years of her life. It was a cold, bright afternoon in early April, April 3rd to be precise, Heli having chosen to die on April Fool's Day. As I walked down the branch road past the sloping meadow that separated my house from hers, I had to squint my eyes to keep from being blinded. A layer of snow still adhered to the hillsides, covered with an icy crust that mirrored back the sun's own brilliance, and the puddles which had formed in the road during an earlier thaw were like smaller outcroppings of the same substance, diamonds and mud. For some reason, I was wearing sneakers. Was this because, despite the snow, it was spring? Was it because I felt stealthy, an interloper? Whatever the explanation, I remember how wet and chilled my feet were by the time I'd opened the trailer door and walked inside. Heli used to keep a fire going in the wood stove, an iron box enameled dark green with a reindeer on each side and a raised medallion. This stove was one of the few things she'd actually gone out and bought when she'd moved into the trailer. For the most part, she'd preferred to make do with whatever austere and makeshift furnishings its former tenants, Flo and Ruby, who had been using it as a clubhouse, had left behind. Thus, the kitchen table was nothing more than a plywood panel that swung down from a hinge in the wall opposite the door 
and the three chairs arranged around it were the kind you'd take to the beach, their frayed blue and white webbing patched with duct tape. Helly had even retained the pictures Flo and Ruby cut from the seed catalogs and taped to the walls. All those zinnias and pansies and roses, their placement obviously dictated not by any aesthetic sense, but by a desire to cover up holes. You couldn't visit Helly until four o'clock, after she'd finished working for the day, when she'd give you a cup of tea, strong black tea in a glass cup, since Flo had refused to let her keep the yellow plastic tea set. In winter, the trailer was always warm. In summer, fresh air would blow through the louvered windows, at least one of which Helly kept cracked open all year long. But when I came in looking for my inheritance that day in April, the air was frigid and stale, like a breath from a stranger's mouth. I was doing all right, though, until I found three onions sprouting in the wire basket that hung above the countertop. Helly would never have let such a thing happen, never, just as she would have found it amusing that onions had made me at last break down and cry. I was wretched, heartsick, inconsolable. I cried and cried, crying as you sometimes do for the whole sorry universe, for the inexplicable machinery that set it in motion and then kept chugging away without regard for all of the tender shoots, as forlorn as these green onion sprouts that lived and died in it. I cried for Helly and I cried for Sam and for myself. For the twins at school, for the rapidly approaching moment when Flo would realize that Ruby's charm would win more friends than her own strange talent, when Ruby would lose Flo as an ally and, without ballast, float away from me forever. It had been a long time since I'd cried like that. What I'd forgotten was that, at least for me, such tears stop as abruptly as they begin. Sorrow spins itself, its currency evidently not governed by those economic rules that every day allow men like my father to get richer and richer. I turned to the handle of the window above the doll-sized sink, then blew my nose on a dish rag so I could smell the air, melting snow and dirt warmed by the sun. A car drove by. Water was dripping from the bushes. And there on the floor at the far end of the trailer, wedged into the corner between the bed and the wall where Helly had left it for me, was the package. It was a cardboard carton, highly waxed and faintly moist, as if it originally had been used for shipping lettuce, with Francis Thorne printed on the envelope taped to its lid. Such a difficult old woman. Did I expect that envelope would contain anything so obvious as a set of instructions? Instead, what I found inside, wrapped in a sheet of 12 stave composition paper, on which the first four staves were filled with the music and words of what appeared to be a song, was a key with a red plastic head. Helly would have expected me to recognize the key, at least by type, immediately. She might have been less certain about the song. But she'd trained me well. I knew right away that she'd stolen it from Mozart, that it was, note for note, Barbarina's 
Cavatina, a sweetly plaintive melody in F minor, from the beginning of the fourth act of Le Nozzi de Figaro. Oh, miserable me, Barbarina sings, I've lost it. She's talking about a pen, one of the many small inanimate objects, including keys, around which the plot of the opera revolves. However, aside from its indirect reference to the subject of search and retrieval, the libretto for the song I found in the envelope bore no resemblance to the Pontes. How can it end, Francis, my sweet, the song asks, if you open the lock before it's complete? Bitter your fate if first you look under the bait to find the hook. The carton contained four smaller boxes, the top one of which, a Whitman sampler, still smelled like chocolate when I'd lifted its lid, as did the photographs stored inside. These seemed to have been gathered haphazardly and, with the peculiar exception of a complete set of dental x-rays, were unlabeled. That woman sitting on a park bench in the middle of a snow-covered town square, the photographer's shadow falling across her wide, serious smile, partially obscuring the features. Could she possibly be Maeve Marrow? And whoever she was, why did looking at her make me feel so inadequate? as if no matter how hard I tried, I'd never be able to figure out what she was doing sitting there in the cold with her coat unbuttoned, or whether her presence was calculated to help me or to throw me off course. Under the chocolate box, there was a quilted pale blue glove box, crammed full of old letters and newspaper clippings, a disorderly pile dotted with empty matchbooks and scraps torn from paper napkins. Many of the letters were in Danish. The clippings, in a variety of foreign languages, included several I'd never seen before. The messages scribbled on the matchbooks and the napkins, even when they were in English, were too private and elliptical to decipher. Snowy owl, cuckoo scoos, oh I'm sorry, oh I'm sorry. Monday without fail. As for the remaining boxes, their contents consisted of musical scores, most of them bound, a tape recording of the 1950 Salzburg Don Giovanni, the only thing Helly had listened to during the last months of her life, and the five spiral notebooks in which she'd been composing her final opera, her feminist masterpiece, the capstone to a brilliant, in if enigmatic, career. I've come eventually to the conclusion that she left it unfinished on purpose. In fact, I sometimes wonder whether her plan started to take shape as long ago as that night in June when our paths first crossed, when she claimed to see flickering around me the faint light of possibility. Never mind that I was sitting on a porch between two lamps. Never mind her persistent urge to revise history. Maybe all Helly wanted was for me to admit that she was right. Maybe if you want to haunt a skeptic, you have to devise a task to which the skeptic's preferred tools, the scalpel and the scales, resist application. I have no other way of explaining it, really. 
She left the opera unfinished because she wanted to haunt me forever. Because certainly it had nothing to do with music. The only practical use I'd found for the manual agility developed during my four unhappy years at Juilliard was shoplifting. Would it have made any difference if, as Helly once suggested, I'd studied clarinet rather than piano? The clarinet, that dark tube glistening with silver buttons and knobs, an instrument designed for the expression of love and passion, fury and parody, just like you, Francis, she'd say. At the time, she'd been busy reworking her melancholy shoe aria, in which a contralto voice and solo clarinet first articulate what will emerge as a central motif, the voice ascending, the clarinet descending, on the edge of a bog. I put everything back into the carton, folded shut the flaps, and returned it to where I'd found it. My dull life, I thought, would continue. I would continue to boil macaroni, to pair socks, to scoop tips from a crumb-laden tabletop in the diner. The twins would be getting home from school, expecting a snack. I had no idea then where I was headed, no idea of how, in the end, I wouldn't be able to stop myself. Of course, Helly was counting on that, that once I'd conjured her up, I wouldn't be able to stop myself from scraping away at her fiendish garments, weighing the residue, the minute heap of chalk dust, which she had been a human soul. The twins would be getting home from school, expecting a snack. I had no idea then where I was headed, no idea of how, in the end, I wouldn't be able to stop myself. Of course, Helly was counting on that, that once I'd conjured her up, I wouldn't be able to stop myself from scraping away at her fiendish garments, weighing the residue, the minute heap of chalk dust, which had been a human soul. At first, I tried to ignore those faint devilish stirrings, the early stages of possession. An image would come to me and I'd ignore it. Helly Timbricks in the guise of a skinny, dark-haired girl, regarding me with a familiar combination of impatience and fervor, her eyes darting this way and that. Go away, I'd say, and she would, but not before she'd left behind a little hole, a gap which, until I acknowledged its presence, until I finally began to figure out how to fill it in, sifting through the papers in the carton, through the remembered conversations, through the trailer's scant furnishings, deeply disturbed my peace of mind. Little by little, it became clear that an entire landscape was taking shape. The girl wasn't alone. She was squirming to get free from a young woman's grip, from the grip of her mother. Pretty Ida Johan's daughter, and the two of them were poised in their green rubber boots near the lag of what had been the great bog at Horns. This would have been in late May or early June. The first spring flowers, crowfoot and sundew, would have been starting to open, the first baby tortoises starting to poke from their eggs. Understand, I did my research. I learned, for instance, that the sundew is carnivorous, 
that its complex digestive system is capable of turning the body of a fly into a spray of white starry blossoms. Something ugly into something beautiful. A sentimental metaphor, as Helly would have been the first to point out. Eventually, though, I could actually hear it, that voice of hers, the deep, hoarse voice of a chain smoker, stirring through my living room like fog through a valley. A reliance on facts or on figurative language will get you nowhere, Francis, I would hear her saying. What about the child's runny nose? the mother's unreliable heart. It begins where it ends, to paraphrase Mashu. When I was a child in Jutland, back in the days when I was still as tender and innocently deceitful as your little girls, my mother used to take me by the hand and lead me into the bog. If you can't understand that, you might as well give up and head straight for the bus terminal. Go ahead, open the locker, you've got the key. Luckily, I'd read enough fairy tales to the twins to know what happened if you gave in to such temptation, just as I'd read enough Freud to know where the suggestion came from. In fact, as Helly had anticipated, it wasn't a plant or a fly that interested me. What interested me, frightened me really, was my own quickening sense of complicity. For at some point, I'd begun to feel it myself, the bog water pooling beneath the soles of those green rubber boots and then gradually higher and higher up until my ankles grew cold and my feet vanished. Was the water rising or was I sinking? Who would have dreamed water could be so black? According to Helly, if you took even one sip of that black frigid water, you'd submit to the bog queen's tyranny. Just one small sip and she'd turn your blood to tannin. Squish, squish, squish. It was impossible to avoid making noise when you walked on Pete. Her sleek eyeless head revolved in its neck socket. Who was walking up there, she wondered. Who indeed but a child and her mother, the mother so involved in her own thoughts that if it weren't for the child's unnatural attentiveness, they probably would have never made it past the first peat hag. The Danish bogs were riddled with these things, big seeping holes left by the men who cut peat, dangerous pools where the storks waited on their long orange legs, hunting for frogs, where even in early spring you could see chunks of dirty ice clinging to the water lily roots. You had to be careful walking through the bog. The bog queen's daughters retaliation, grudge, and unnameable were waiting for you to make, on, make one false move. The bug queen's daughters, retaliation, grudge, and unnameable were waiting for you to make one false move. One false move and you were done for. At least that is what Ida had told Helly before they set out. The bug queen's daughters, she'd said, were the reason why they had shoemakers. Hadn't Helly noticed how shoemakers were always men? Men were always busy figuring out ways to protect themselves. The only problem was, shoes wouldn't do you any good in a bog. 
And if you worried about your shoes, like the girl in the famous story, then you'd sink down, down, down. You'd do something stupid, something that would catch their attention, like making a stepping stone out of a loaf of bread, which was supposed to be a gift for your lonely old mother, just to protect your shoes. And then retaliation would strike you dumb, and grudge would turn your skin to salt, and unnameable would wind your soul right out of you and on a tiny wooden spindle. Later, Helly explained to me that what Ida had actually been talking about were the Furies, whom she transposed from their birthplace on the Aegean to cold, flat Denmark. As I understand it, the only comparable threesome in Denmark is an indifferent lot called the Norns. To generate anything so horrible as the Furies would have required a more fiery cauldron than the North could provide. In any event, Ida's reasons for doing this remain unclear. Was she trying to instill in her daughter that love of hyperbole, essential to the operatic vision, or just trying to frighten the child? And why was it that the further they got from the house, the closer to the bog's humped center, the more reckless Ida became, as if to deny the existence of the dangers she'd been describing only an hour earlier? because she certainly wasn't watching where she put her own feet, plunging ahead without regard for the obvious peculiarities of the landscape, pausing only when she got sucked to the knee into one of the fisheries between the hammocks, or when the hem of her coat got snagged on a leather-leaf bush. But Ida, as Helly explained it to me, had a talent for dressing up her own thwarted impulses so they would come out looking like advice. Most unhappy people, Helly said, were good at dressing things up. Perhaps this is why, on their first visit to the bog every spring, her mother insisted on bringing a handful of cotton grass back to the house with her. Seven or eight thin, perfectly straight stems, surmounted by what looked like clumps of mouse fur. Ida would take the cotton grass home and arrange it in a vase of sea-green glass, which she would then set on the closed lid of her baby grand, but not before putting down an embroidered doily first. A fine piano's wood is unbelievably susceptible to defacement, and the lightest touch of a finger leaves a print that can never be removed. The story Ida was referring to is, of course, the girl who trod on a loaf. Originally a folk song, it chronicles the horrible fate of a vain young woman from the town of Sibo in Pomerania, whose punishment for loving a pair of shoes more than a loaf of bread is to be frozen like a boulder before she's swallowed into a mud puddle. Toward the end of the 18th century, the song was published as a broadside, and despite its heavy-handed morality and plodding rhymes, O human soul, keep this in mind, abandon pride's temptation, and leave all other sins behind, they were her ruination. It's remembered for having inspired Hans Christian Andersen's story of the same name. In Anderson's version, a poor young girl named Inger is sent out to service in the country where, after successfully charming her rich mistress, she's treated like a member of the family, 
dressed in beautiful clothes, and eventually urged to return home for a visit. Anderson has already told us that Ingo's disposition was bad from the beginning. With his customary fondness for perverse behavior, he's detailed Ingo's childhood habit of pulling the wings from flies and impaling beetles on pins. With his flair for the melodramatic, he's allowed Ingo's mother to predict that one day her daughter will trample on her heart. Which, Anderson goes on to tell us, she does with a vengeance. Ingo's mistress sends her off with two presents, a new pair of shoes for herself and a large loaf of bread for her parents. Naturally, when the path she's following leads through a bog, Ingrid decides to step on the loaf rather than risk ruining her shoes. Up to this point, Anderson has more or less conformed to the narrative line of the song. But even though both girls find themselves transformed for their wickedness into statues, the girl in the song remains above ground where everyone can see her while Ingrid sinks to the bottom of the bog where she becomes a decorative element in the devil's courtyard. How gruesome and exotic the plight of the damned. Although Inger is ravenous, she can't move a muscle to break off so much as a tiny piece of the loaf to which she's welded. Although flies, the very flies she mutilated years earlier, creep all over her face, she can't raise a finger to brush them away. Her whole body is fixed in place, with the exception of her eyes. And this proves to be a dubious advantage, since the only way her eyes will turn is backwards, revealing the ugly thoughts peeking out at her from between the folds of her brain. Years go by. Inger discovers that she's able to hear everything people say about her, none of it good. Her mother, her mistress, the cowherd who watched her sink out of sight, the effect of their judgment is to make her hard heart harder still. She hears songs about her arrogance, stories describing her vanity. Her own mother's dying words are, What a grief you've been to me. And then, amazingly, another dying woman, a stranger, weeps at the door of heaven for Inger's soul. When her tears filter down through all those layers of peat, the girl's stony carapace dissolves and a little bird is released to fly into the upper world. At first the bird is without voice and ashamed to be seen, so it hides in the chink of a wall. Winter comes, the ponds freeze over, food is scarce. When the bird finally emerges, it is to seek out those random morsels of bread left in the baiting places or fallen in the tracks of sledges. Motivated more by sympathy than by hunger, the bird eats only a single crumb of whatever it finds and gives away the rest until, at last, what it has given away equals the weight of the original loaf which Inger tossed so thoughtlessly so many years ago into the bog. The bird's dull gray wings turn white Children watch it as it flies across the sea, its body gleaming right into the sun. Literary critics, to a man, as Helly was fond of saying, 
tend to find Anderson's punishment excessive, given the nature of Enger's crime. Puzzled, they resort to Freudian analysis. The shoe, they suggest, stands for the uterus. Enger's pride in her shoes for her awakening sexuality. Naturally, Anderson, his fear of sex legendary, his famous passion for Jenny Lind, fueled as much by the purity of her moral conduct as by the purity of her voice, would have waited to banish the uterus to hell, where it belonged. However, in Helly Tenbrick's operatic version, likewise entitled The Girl Who Trod on a Loaf, Inger is no sinner but a heroine, her apparent arrogance a measure of her strength, her sojourn underground a stage of apprenticeship to that feminist ideal represented by the Bog Queen. In the opera, Inger's shoes become, quite literally, the vehicles of her enlightenment. It makes perfect sense that Helly's Inger, bent on protecting her shoes, would decide to step on what might otherwise have come to serve as a symbol of her oppression. Just as it follows that, bent on uncovering the enemy's identity, she would have shown an early interest in dissection. God is now the enemy, and the bog queen, together with her furious daughters, the inevitable worms and the rose of creation. Without them, God's mindless replication of his own heart might have gone on forever and ever. A crystal hive, as Inger sings, that organ which the word analogous to man's imagining. Ellie Tenbrick's Impossible Beloved Helly, where are you now? If I were to return to the little bog you took me to one day, in that place where the branch road turns to a muddy trail before disappearing entirely into a thicket of cedar trunks, if I were to peer in among the deeply puckered, pale green leaves of the Solomon Sill, would I see, instead of the expected single drop of water, one of your grey, furious eyes staring back at me? Because I know you went somewhere. I was there when you died. I saw you go. No, no, she'll non mi pento, you said, grabbing my hand. I could hear Marco pausing outside the door to wind his watch, as if to generate an endless stream of minutes, hours, days, as if to imply that you still had all the time in the world. All the time in the world? What could he have been thinking of? Tick, tick, tick. Only a week earlier, you told us how the air was filling up with ticking black particles, which was why you had to wear earphones in order to listen to John Giovanni. Only at night, after Marco had gone home and everyone else was asleep, were you able to continue work on your own opera, Don Giovanni and the Girl Who Trod on a Loaf two works which have little in common beyond the fact that their protagonists sink into hell. Of course, in the former case, it's the fiery pit of Christian iconography. In the latter, the cold pit of the bog. Is that where you're stuck forever? In a cold, moist cauldron of peat, consigned to an eternity of tea parties with the bog queen? 
and her bad-tempered daughters? Maybe you were wrong. Maybe there actually is a heaven, and up there your musical skills have won you so much praise from the angels that you've forgotten whatever passion it was that shaped you. I hope not. Just as I hope that if you're watching me now, either up through a hole in the peat or down through a gap in the clouds, you'd be happy to know the extent to which I am finally yours and yours alone.